Good morning, everybody. Uh, let's go ahead and get started. Um, my name is Chetan Kapoor. I'm product, uh, part of the product management team with EC2. Uh, before we get too deep into the session, uh, show of hands, how many of us are new to the cloud or EC2? A small portion, okay. Uh, and how many of us are already using EC2? Okay, a decent majority, great. Um, so this session is gonna, is gonna get into some of the details around how EC2 works, uh, and it's gonna be applicable for you know, all of us who are either new to the cloud or already using EC2 and wanna learn a little bit more about how it actually works. Um, so um, you know, just to start from the, from the baseline, EC2 uh, stands for Elastic Compute Cloud. It's a web service that makes it easy for our customers to provision uh, uh, c compute capacity uh, via just, uh, just clicks in a console or uh, simple API calls. And in this session today, um, we're gonna talk about how EC2 works, uh, review different offerings, uh, talk about different use cases that they're targeted for. Um, we'll also highlight some of the new EC2 features and product launches uh, that we have introduced this week um, and uh, weeks leading up to reInvent. So, so let's dig in. So our, our, our discussion today or our talk today is gonna to be broken up by these four sections. Uh, we're gonna talk about resources, primarily EC2 instances, uh, but we'll also very quickly touch upon storage elements associated with EC2. Uh, networking is a really big part uh, for EC2. Uh, we'll discuss uh, availability, uh, the concept of regions and availability zones and how to build resilient applications. Uh, talk a little bit about management, and then we'll conclude by talking about purchasing options and how to optimize your spend on EC2. Uh, we're gonna spend uh, about 70% of our time uh, talking about instances because that's core of what EC2 does, um, and then we'll quickly breathe through the rest of the sections. Uh, please bear in mind that um, uh, you know, discussions around building fault-tolerant, highly resilient applications, uh, you know, managing your EC2 resources and purchase options, uh, they all by themselves can be like hour-long, uh, you know, level 200 content. So uh, the, the concept behind this presentation is to give you guys, uh, you know, second-level insight into uh, what these things are, and then uh, you can follow up via uh, other talks at reInvent or uh, some of the Getting Started content we have on our website. So, so let's dig in. So EC2, like I mentioned, is Elastic Compute Cloud. Uh, although sometimes we position cloud as being this nebulous thing that doesn't have any walls or boundaries, um, reality is uh, that uh, it does go back to uh, racks of compute servers uh, that are deployed in our data centers, right? Um, so at the highest level, uh, one AWS region contains multiple availability zones. Uh, each availability zone has its own power domain, it's its own networking domain, it's, it's got own cooling uh, subsystems. Um, and each availability zone, zone uh, consists of multiple data center buildings. So that's, you know, that's the full construct of you know, regions and availability zones as we call it. Uh, these racks of compute servers that we deploy um, very often have you know, uh, dozens of servers that are part of the rack itself. And uh, each server has four critical uh, hardware resources uh, that are provisioned as instances. So uh, we have compute, memory, storage, and networking. Um, so so a host server contains these uh, core resources, and then we use a hypervisor to provision and slice up these resources and provide them to you as, as uh, virtual machines, which we call as instances. So when you launch an EC2 instance, you're running on a virtualized uh, portion of a server that is deployed in an AWS region um, and is available in an availability zone. So back when, in, uh, back in 2006, 2006 uh, when we launched uh, EC2, our first instance was M1. Uh, it provided access to one virtual CPU uh, running at uh, you know, 1.7 uh, you know, gigahertz um, and a couple of gigabytes of system memory. Uh, so besides giving customers the ability to launch compute resources through a web service, uh, there were two other key tenants for EC2. Uh, one was we enabled customers to pay only for what they used. 
Um, so if you needed a, a virtual machine or instance for a few hours, that's what you did. You just spun it up, you paid for that time you used it, then you shut it back down. The second one was we gave customers the ability to easily scale how many VMs or instances uh, you know, they, were, they were able to use. Um, and you know, again, back in 2006, a lot of people considered this as revolutionary because the only alternative at that time was for customers like yourselves to rack and stack hardware, right? So you would, you would build out data centers, you would actually provision you know, racks and servers and set up the software and have people managing the compute, networking, and storage elements of your data center. So, so since then, uh, you know, our offerings have evolved dramatically, mainly because of the feedback that we have been receiving from uh, you guys. Uh, M1 was a really good instance for us to get started with. It had a decent uh, ratio of all the compute resources. Uh, but as, as more customers started adopting EC2, we started getting more feedback about, well, for, my, for my, this particular application, I need this other configuration, and for this other one, I need a slightly different configuration. So we have been evolving our portfolio pretty uh, quickly, trying to keep pace with your requirements. Um, in 2017, uh, we introduced our Nitro uh, system, uh, which Werner talked about in his keynote, and I'll also go into some detail uh, in this section. And in 2017, there was an inflection point where uh, the amount or the number of EC2 instances that we have been able to offer for our customers, such as yourself, has really accelerated. Um, and we'll get into, deep, uh, uh, into some of the details around the Nitro subsystem. So today, as you speak, uh, we have more than 270 instance types available for you to use. Again, going back to 2006, um, N1, M1 instance, like I talked about, 1.7 gigahertz, 1.75 gigabytes of RAM, some local storage, uh, 250 megabits of networking bandwidth, uh, and this was launched by a blog post from Jeff Barr. And since then, uh, our portfolio evolved very, very uh, uh, dramatically. So today, as we speak, we have instances that go up to four gigahertz of uh, clock frequency in form of our Z1D uh, instances. We have um, instances that offer up to 24 terabytes of uh, instance, uh, instance memory. Uh, we have storage instances in the form of i3EN that provide 60 terabytes of NVMe storage, uh, or D2 uh, that provides 48 terabytes of local storage in form of a rotating media drive, so really optimized for cost per gigabyte. And then we have increased our uh, networking bandwidth yet uh, more than 10x uh, by going up to 100 gigabits per second on per instance type. And our ability to fulfill your needs uh, to the best possible ability with respect to instance sizes and the pace at which we are innovating through the Nitro, uh, hyper, Nitro subsystem um, has, has allowed us to maintain our position in the market where uh, when, when you look at the, the vision and the ability to execute, uh, AWS is leader in the uh, infrastructure as a service uh, magic quadrant by, by Gartner. And, um, if you would have been tracking this magic quantum over the last few years, you would have noticed that there are fewer and fewer players on this chart. Uh, it's, it's mainly because you know, a lot of companies are realizing that it's hard to kind of operate at the scale that our customers are expecting us to operate um, and, and offer the features and capabilities that AWS is offering. All right, so let's jump into uh, instance characteristics. So I mentioned this earlier. Uh, there are four key hardware resources and an EC2 instance, uh, CPU, me CPU, memory, storage, and networking performance. And each instance family provides a different ratio of these re uh, resources targeted for uh, particular applications. For, for, uh, so, so let's talk about M5, for example. M5 is part of our general purpose uh, instance family. Uh, it provides a healthy or a good balance of CPU memory, networking resource, storage options and, network, uh, and, um, and networking performance. The, the number five represents the generation of that family in our portfolio. Uh, so as uh, silicon providers such as Intel or AMD come up with new generations of processors with new features and capabilities, we introduce new generations in the same family. Um, so in the case of the general purpose family, M5 is our most recent instance. Uh, the letter D or the letter following the number typically represents variations to that core instance, 
where we might have options with a local storage or options with a different processor, um, uh, like Intel versus AMD, for, as an example. Uh, the extra large represents a t-shirt size. Uh, it defines uh, you know, the amount of uh, compute resources you have in instance. And we scale up or down based on this t-shirt size. So for example, a two extra large, or two XL as we call it, uh, is gonna have twice the resources as an extra large, but at the same ratio as what the extra large provided. So besides you know, giving you options for different instance families, uh, we have also been innovating on giving you multiple options on the processor types. Um, we've got a really good relationship with Intel, um, and most of our instance families are based on Intel processors. Uh, but last year we introduced, uh, and we were first in the market to introduce uh, AMD Epic-based processors. And uh, we also introduced uh, Graviton processors in the form of our A1 instance. Um, and this is geared around giving you uh, the ultimate flexibility in right-sizing the EC2 instance for your applications and optimizing your cost. Now let's talk about software a bit. So we talked about uh, EC2 instances, that these are virtual machines uh, that are running on compute servers uh, in, our, in our data centers. Uh, what runs on these EC2 instances? Well, uh, we use a term called Amazon Machine Images, or AMIs, um, as an acronym, and AMIs contain uh, the, ho the, the host operating system. Uh, so this could be Linux, this could be CentOS, this could be Ubuntu, uh, this could be Windows, um, along with the hardware drivers that are needed for that EC2 instance to function at optimal performance, coupled with whatever software that you are bringing to the table, whatever software that you need for your application. So, so that's what an AMI contains. Um, and there are different ways you can, you can build your own AMI. Uh, for example, you can start with the base image that Amazon provides. So we provide uh, Amazon Linux, one, Linux, Amazon Linux 2 images, we provide Windows images, um, and then you could take these images which come pre-packaged with drivers that are optimized for instances and add your software on top of them, right? Um, or uh, you could start by using a marketplace um, offering where uh, our partners uh, provide prepackaged AMIs for specific functionality, ready to go. You can just click and run them on an EC2 instance of your choice. Um, an example might be that uh, if you are trying to build a network appliance and you really like the capability of a Cisco product, then you could go into our marketplace, uh, search for Cisco, find that offering that you like, and deploy it on an EC2 instance, and you're up and running right away. Uh, the third option is you can actually build your own or import your images. Uh, we provide a service called VM Import where uh, you could target it to a VM that is running in your data center and can replicate that EM, VM and create an AMI available for you to launch an EC2 instance with. Uh, by the way, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, quick fact that VM Import service also allows you to export this AMIs from AWS. So for whatever reason, if you wanted to take an AMI that you have uh, on AWS and you want to export it and you want to write it on-prem, uh, you can do that too. So some, for some of the, the folks that are new in the audience, uh, new to cloud in the audience, um, let me give a quick demo of how quickly uh, I can launch an EC2 instance. I'm going to switch. Give me. Okay. So when you log into your AWS console, this is the experience you'll see. Um, you can uh, find EC2 by uh, clicking on the Services tab and locating EC2 under Compute, and you can see all the rest of the services that are available for you to use. Um, or you could just simply search for EC2 here. Uh, in my case since I've used EC2 before, it's showing under the recently visited services. I click on, click on EC2, get into the EC2 console. Um, so in this case, I'm targeting our Oregon region. You can see this on the top right of my screen. And I can launch an instance by cl simply clicking on this button, uh, selecting the AMI type that I want to launch this instance with. Um, and then you'll see all the different um, uh, instances that are available in that region for me to launch that Amazon Linux AMI with. Um, I'm gonna narrow down this list to pick general purpose, 
And then I'm going to scroll down to pick um, M5 instance. Um, let, let's pick M52XL, which comes with eight vCPUs. Um, there's some advanced configurations associated with these instances. Um, in the interest of time, uh, I'm going to skip over these and just stick with the default values. Um, this defines the EBS volume that is going to be associated with my instance. And this volume is actually going to host my operating system or the main boot drive of the instance. Uh, you could add tags if you wanted to. Uh, security groups is a pretty important setting. Uh, it actually defines the networking rules with respect to what an instance uh, can talk to and who can it talk to. So in this case, uh, I want to show you guys how I can SSH into that machine. So my default security group uh, allows for a TCP IP connection on port 22. And right now, it is open to the world. I can, I can SSH into this machine from any IP address. Um, uh, but you can, you can lock that down and limit it to the domain of your company if that's what your uh, security posture uh, requires. Uh, it's giving me a couple of notifications that I'm going to be charged for this instance. And then um, it is also warning me that my security group is open to the world. And like I mentioned earlier, the recommended practice is for you to limit your security groups uh, to IP addresses that you know your users are going to be associating into the machine from, right? And I'm going to go ahead and simply click on the launch button. This is going to ask me, this screen is going to ask me for a key pair. Uh, the way we do this is when you set up your account for the first time, uh, there'll be a, a file that is created that needs to be on the local machine for, for me to actually SSH into that instance. If I don't have it, I can't SSH. So this is the second level of um, security um, that we uh, provide in order to make sure that customers have authenticated uh, uh, login sessions with their, with their instances. So I'm going to click. And then uh, it gives me a message, the instance are launching. I go back to my dashboard and hit refresh. And within 10 seconds, my uh, M5XL, 2XL in this case, with Amazon Linux is running. Uh, let's try and connect to this. Um, you have multiple different options. And since this is a Linux uh, AMI-based instance, uh, I can use my favorite SSH client to log into this machine. Uh, uh, as part of this demo, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to select the EC2 Instance Connect, which is going to allow me to connect to this instance using a browser-based uh, connection. And if I hit Connect, oops, this is what happens when you VPN in. Um, apologize. Give me one second. Get back into this. I'm going to get back into my connection, uh, click EC2 uh, Instance Connect. It's browser-based. And just like that, I've been able to SSH into my uh, Linux instance. And if I do LSCPU, it's going to tell me details of the processor that I have in this instance. And you can see I have eight vCPUs. Um, this is running on an Intel Xeon Platinum uh, 8175 processor running at 2.5 gigahertz uh, at this particular uh, frequency. Great. So that's a really simple way uh, to, you know, just log into your EC2, or set, launch an EC2 instance and log into it. Um, a lot of our large, sophistic, sophisticated customers, uh, instead of using a console, use a command line interface or uh, program their applications to directly launch EC2 instances. So here's a... Uh, here's a simple way, here's a simple, again, example of uh, how to do this. Uh, I've already pre-configured my PowerShell um, by giving it the right access keys. Um, and uh, if I run the simple command where uh, it's a run instances command where I'm defining the type of instance I want, um, the image that I wanted to uh, load with, and which region I'm targeting. And as soon as I had hit enter, uh, within seconds, it's going to go ahead and launch that VM. Uh, if I refresh this page, since again I was targeting that Oregon region, here's a second instance type uh, that I just launched using a CLI already available for me to go ahead and connect and use in my application. So great, it's a really simple example uh, just to demonstrate the fact that it's, it's pretty straightforward for customers to uh, you know, launch EC2 instances, uh, configure them, uh, and you can do this using uh, the console. You can use this using a command line interface. And as I mentioned earlier, you have APIs available through our SDK for popular IDEs.
that you could build into your application itself. Great. So let's jump into instance types, and we're going to be uh, really quick in this section because there's a lot of depth here. Uh, our general purpose instance types are targeted for workloads such as web applications, uh, web servers, uh, gaming servers, dev test environments, uh, caching fleets. Our M5 instance, which is the latest generation, is a workhorse uh, in this category. It is available with four is to one ratio of memory to vCPU. That means for every vCPU that we have in the system, there'll be four gigabytes of system memory that is available in that instance. Uh, what we have realized over the years is, um, although we provision all these vCPUs as part of these VMs, a lot of customer workloads are actually not using vCPUs. So we took that as an opportunity for us to give you an instance family that is optimized on cost per performance. Um, and uh, we came up with our T series of instances, with T3 being the latest one. Uh, and the way T3 works is it provides you with a really generous baseline performance of CPU frequency at a lower cost than M5 family. And if your application needs to burst above that baseline, you can do that uh, through what we call as uh, CPU credits. Um, so, so T3 is a really good, a really good instance for uh, applications that are not super sensitive on CPU performance and can help you lower your costs noticeably over M5 instances. Um, last year, we, uh, we introduced our first ARM CPU-based instance. Uh, these are based on processors that we have built. Uh, these are called the Graviton processors. Um, the instance we launched last year, which is the A1 instance, um, has a 64-bit uh, ARM Neo processor, and uh, our customers have been able to save 45% uh, over their uh, M5 and T3 equivalent uh, instances. Again, since, since these are ARM-based, you, you have to have applications that are compilable and deployable on an ARM-based architecture instead of relying on an x86 architecture. Uh, so, so that's what the portfolio looks, uh, M5, T3, and A1. Uh, earlier this week, uh, Andy announced that we have launched instances uh, with our newer generation of the Graviton processor, the Graviton 2 processor. Um, it is, uh, again, a 64-bit processor, but significantly higher performance than the A1 instances. It's based on a 7-nanometer silicon fabrication process, which is the latest in the industry. Um, provides up to 64 vCPUs and 20 gigabits of networking capability, and seven times more performance than our A1 uh, instances. And these uh, pro processors are gonna be available in the form of M6G, R6G, and C6G instances. Uh, M6G is available in preview today, uh, so you could search for it on, your, uh, on our website, look for it on our website, and, um, and request for a preview access. Uh, R6G and C6G are expected to be available in the first half of next year. All right. So that was general purpose instances and general purpose workloads. Uh, there are a lot of applications that are super sensitive on the amount of memory that is available in that instance. Uh, this could be caching tiers uh, that are on top of databases. Uh, this could be really large instances with a lot of system memory that host the entire database in the memory uh, and also appropriate for big data analytics. Uh, these instances provide more CPU memory uh, than what our general purpose instances provide. So in the case of R5, it provides an eight is to one ratio. That means for every vCPU, you have eight gigabytes of system memory. We have built on uh, R5 to provide our X1 and X1E instances, with X1E offering 32 is to one ratio of memory to vCPU. And then lastly, um, over the last year, we have introduced our high memory instances that go up to 24 terabytes of system memory, and they're targeted to run uh, ACP, uh, ACP HANA workloads. To contextualize this portfolio of high memory instances, uh, you'll see R5 goes up to 768 gigabytes of system memory. X1 and X1E collective go up to four gigabytes of system memory, and then the high memory instances go up to 24 terabytes of system memory. And uh, and uh, customers can not only scale up using these different sizes, they can also uh, gang up multiple instances together to create scale out, um, to scale out um, uh, uh, instances with, uh, with much more 
uh, system memory. All right, so let's talk about compute-intensive workloads. Uh, these workloads uh, in, uh, are, are very different, or well, I shouldn't say very different, they're noticeably different than uh, the general purpose workload, and they are sensitive to how fast the CPU can run. What is the frequency it is operating at? Uh, this could be batch processing, HPC applications, or video encoding, where applications are sensitive to uh, just, just this raw CPU performance. Uh, so in our portfolio, we have our C5 instances, that provide two is to one ratio and up to 3.1 gigahertz of CPU frequency. Uh, Z1D is available on the high end, which goes up to four gigahertz, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, it provides more vCPU, uh, uh, to more memory to vCPU than our C5 instance. Um, the next category is storage uh, intensive uh, instances or storage intensive workloads. Uh, they can be broadly broken up by workloads that need high IO or high ops. And uh, the second category is uh, you know, workloads that need just a lot of shared data storage. Uh, so for the high IO, it could be you know, high performance databases, you know, real-time analytics. In the dense storage perspective, it could be uh, you know, uh, you know, big data, HDFS, you know, Kafka, or um, you know, Hadoop-based uh, workloads. Um, and also they're really good for like data warehousing uh, applications with really low dollars per gigabyte uh, for, for, these, uh, for these instance types. So again, a quick rundown into instances in this family. Uh, we have our i3 and i3en that are latest instances in, in this uh, category, uh, and they provide access to NVMe SSD-based storage. Um, D2 instances provide the lowest dollars per gigabyte in our portfolio using rotating media drives. And then H1 is slightly uh, different variant on D2. It still has rotating media drives, but provides more vCPUs and memory uh, than our D2 instances. The last category of instances that I want to talk about is the uh, instances that support our accelerated computing workloads. What do we mean by that? Well, these are applications that need some form of a hardware acceleration in that instance for that particular workload. So this could be machine learning applications where you need GPUs or you know, uh, you know, accelerators that are able to significantly reduce the time it takes to train the models uh, or even deploy them uh, in production for inference applications. This could be high-performance computing. Um, Peter, in his keynote uh, on Monday, talked about you know, computational fluid dynamics uh, as an example. Uh, computational chemistry uh, is another category. Genomics uh, in this, uh, is another application type in high-performance computing. Um, and, the and the last key application type is graphics, where uh, you know, if you're providing remote graphics workstations uh, for your internal customers, where uh, you know, customers can log into a virtual machine and use it as a remote workstation. Uh, 3D modeling, rendering, AR, VR, and video editing uh, are also application types in this category. So when you, when you talk about hardware acceleration, you just take a step back. Um, you, you know, there are generally two or three types of hardware accelerators, accelerations you can talk about. Uh, in context to a CPU, CPUs, we know them, we love them. Uh, they're really, really good for general purpose applications that typically have 10 to 100 uh, processing cores that are available. Uh, the instruction set or what you can do with that chip is predefined by the manufacturer of that chip. So this could be Intel, this could be AMD, or it could be us uh, you know, in the form of us building our Graviton processors. And like I mentioned earlier, really well suited for general purpose applications. GPUs, on the other hand, have thousands of processing cores. Um, in the latest GPU that NVIDIA has, which is the Volta V100, they have over 5,000 processing cores. Uh, similar to CPUs, they come with a predefined instruction set, but just because of their nature or the architecture where they have these thousands of processing cores, they're really, really effective for applications that have parallelized processing tasks. Uh, so this could be like simple concept as matrix multiply, which is a core component of machine learning training and a lot of HPC applications. Uh, or it could be uh, for digital signal processing, such as FFT, again, where there's a lot of math that can be paralyzed behind the scene. Uh, FPGAs stands for Field Programmable Gate Arrays. Um, and to simplify, FPGAs are nothing but just blank silicon that is user programmable. They have millions of these digital logic cells that you would use a special application to actually program and define a specific function for that chip. Uh, since it is you know, a blank piece of silicon that you need to program, 
it does not come with a fixed instruction set. That means you as an end user need to know how to program FPGAs. But if you do, since you're coding your acceleration to run in hardware instead of software, uh, software uh, execution steps, you can actually see a significant performance boost. Some of our customers are reporting 20, 30, 40x performance advantages over running just simply on a CPU-based uh, instance. Um, the last category that I want to talk about is ASICs, which stands for Application-Specific Integrated Circuits, where these are chips. Uh, they're not general purpose, but they have been custom designed for a particular application type. Uh, and you do that where, you know, you know, when you have a lot of volume for that specific use case, and you know that your customers need that acceleration in order to get the best price performance in the market. Uh, but similar to CPUs and GPUs, they actually come with a fixed instruction set by the manufacturer of that ASIC. So looking at our portfolio in this category, uh, we have our P-series of instances. Uh, these are targeted for GPU compute workloads, uh, such as deep learning training, uh, inferencing, uh, financial computing, and batch rendering. Uh, they include NVIDIA's uh, high-end GPUs, uh, such as the Volta V100. You have the G-series uh, that are primarily targeted for graphics applications. Like I mentioned, 3D rendering, uh, gaming, uh, remote workstations, uh, AR, VR uh, are the type of workloads that these instances are targeted for. Um, and our G4 instance is the latest in this category with uh, uh, NVIDIA's T4 GPUs uh, 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 as what we provision as part of that instance. And then we also have FPGA instances. We were the first cloud provider to launch FPGA-based instances in the form of our F1 instance, uh, where customers can uh, program uh, FPGAs using programming languages such as VHDL and OpenCL and custom-build accelerators uh, for their application. In this category, we announced our first uh, instance featuring our own ML chip that we have built. Uh, so we announced the Inf1 inf instances uh, featuring our Inferentia ASIC. Um, it is targeted for high-performance machine learning inference. Uh, what that means is where you have a model that's already pre-trained and you're deploying it in production and feeding it uh, live user data for it to make predictions on what the user data is all about. Uh, and it's, it's designed to give you a much lower cost per inference for running these applications in the cloud with up to 40% lower than what we provide in our GPU instances. Great. And the last category type of instances we have is bare metal instances. Uh, so bare metal instances, uh, if you guys recall when we talked about uh, EC2 initially, there's a hypervisor that, that, that sits over the hardware and virtualizes the computer resources. It slices it down into smaller chunks that we provision as uh, instances. We provide EC2 bare metal instances that have no hypervisor. Uh, U.S. customers get access to the full server, and, and you can load up your own hypervisor if that's what your preference is. So uh, all of this capability and flexibility that we have in our portfolio starts with a Nitro platform. So we have been able to launch bare metal instances and increase the pace at which we are delivering these instances to you for your various workloads based on our investment in the Nitro platform. So the Nitro platform, in a nutshell, consists of three core components. Uh, it's got a security chip in the middle, in the heart of it, which actually is the root of trust for our hypervisors, and it's part of the physical motherboard that we have uh, in the server. Uh, we have a Nitro card that offloads a lot of the system management uh, that we need to do in order to virtualize the compute resources. And then we have uh, the Nitro hypervisor. So this is the hypervisor that is super lightweight, is uh, high performance, and gives you bare metal-like performance and allows you to virtualize, allows us to virtualize the full server uh, into smaller VMs. So let's, uh, let's dig a little bit deeper into Nitro. So uh, when EC2 started, and this is like prior to 2012, um, on a single server, uh, we, uh, we were using Zen as our hypervisor, and Zen has a concept of what we call as, uh, what is called as DOM zero or domain zero. In, in DOM0, that's where you actually run your core um, uh, hypervisor stack. So the hypervisor along with uh, the management uh, services required for 
partitioning, networking, storage resources also runs in DOM0. You have a lot of management, security, and monitoring services or microservices that are also running in DOM0. And then you have your hypervisor. So prior to 2012, uh, about 70% of the server resources were available for our customers as VMs. Um, and we were using about 30% or 20 to 30% for running this DOM0 entity, right? So which is the, all this network partitioning, storage partitioning, resource management, and security uh, services on the same host, which we also call as Droplet. So in 2012, uh, we introduced our uh, C3 offering where we uh, offloaded the networking capabilities. So again, just to dive a little bit deeper on what this networking capability is, uh, let's assume that the instance has 10 gigabits, uh, or the server has 10 gigabits of networking connectivity coming into that server. Uh, we need to partition that 10 gigabits of networking connectivity for all the instances that are running. Um, and we also need to load balance them across all the VMs uh, that are running on the same server. So that's one of the core components of what, you know, in this case, the, the networking uh, you know, microservice was doing. Uh, and in 2012, we offloaded that uh, to a separate accelerator card or separate uh, card that was running in the server. Um, and then we acquired a company called Annapurna Labs. And it's been super exciting to continue with this journey where we have been slowly and steadily being able to move more and more uh, uh, host features off from the droplet or the host onto this Nitro card. So today, as a part of the Nitro architecture, we have the networking stack, our storage stack, our monitoring management stack that all have been offloaded to the separate Nitro card that is in our servers. What does that mean for you guys as customers? Well, it gives us the ability to maximize the hardware utilization that we provide in terms of instances to, to our customers. Bottom line is, the, more, the better we can maximize our utilization of the server, the, the, the lower cost it is for us to provision these resources and pass on those savings to you as customers. So that's why you would have seen that over the generations that we have the C5, from C3 to C4 to C5, uh, besides the performance advantages that we're getting from the processors through this Nitro architecture, we can maximize the utilization of the server and pass on those savings to you guys in terms of uh, lower prices. Uh, so again, so we have you know, almost 100% of the server resources available uh, as instances, and there's a very tiny fraction that is consumed by the hypervisor. But once we have this architecture where all these management services are offloaded from the droplet, we can just simply take out the hypervisor. That's how we provide uh, bare metal instances um, to you guys uh, in, in form of I3E and a lot of different uh, instance types that we have in our portfolio. Great, so uh, to summarize, what Nitro delivers is uh, higher performance, uh, better security, because again, a lot of this, um, the, the, the DOM zero doesn't exist anymore. A lot, you know, a lot of those core functions have been offloaded to this other accelerator, the Nitro card as we talk about, and allow us, allows us to innovate faster to provide you guys more instances um, for the right application for the right type. One of the feedbacks that we hear from our customers is like, there's so many instances. Like, which one do I pick for which application, right? Uh, so you've received that feedback, um, and we have been you know, thinking about it. And uh, last week, or earlier this week, uh, we announced a couple of new capabilities uh, in, this, in this capability, uh, in this space. Um, the first one that I want to talk about is uh, instance discovery. Uh, what this does is, if you go into the EC2 console, you now have a really easy way to compare different instances and also look at their uh, capabilities, where how many vCPUs, what type of system memory, how much storage they have, along with the price of that instance. You no longer have to shuttle between like looking at what the, what's in the console, our pricing pages to understand what the price is gonna be. Very simply, you can look at uh, your different instance types and compare and contrast the resources between them. So that's gonna help you right size the instance that you need and make sure you're making a conscious decision about cost and you're aware of uh, the different options you're available in our portfolio. Uh, the next one that is super exciting is the AWS Compute Optimizer. Uh, what this does is once you have Institute instances running in our portfolio, let's assume you have tens of instances you're running for your application, maybe hundreds, 
Uh, in some cases, or in many cases, customers are running thousands of instances. Uh, AWS Compute Optimizer is a machine learning based uh, service that looks at uh, your CloudWatch metrics. These are metrics that you have access to to look at compute, uh, uh, compute usage, like uh, what portion of your CPU you're using, how much network bandwidth you're using, what type of EBS performance you have. So AWS Compute Optimizer looks at all these characteristics and recommends alternative instances that may be, better, may be a better fit. We talked about how in the case of M5 and some of our you know, compute optimized instances, if the CPU is not busy and it's just sitting there and it's like oversized for your application, compute optimizer will look at that trend and make a recommendation that, hey, you might actually be okay if you just downscale your instance. Instead of running a 2XL, you could run an XL and your application would run fine, right? So it's targeted to recommend optimal EC2 instances and scaling configurations to, uh, for your applications itself. Again, really simple to use, available at no cost, and you can, uh, you can take advantage of this uh, right away. Great, so like I mentioned earlier, uh, we're gonna spend a lot of time on instances, but let's switch gears and quickly go through uh, the next few sections uh, in this presentation. So storage, again, is a big topic. There are a lot of details here. Uh, what I do want to talk about is our Elastic Block Storage, or EBS service. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Instance have uh, compute storage networking uh, and CPU as a part of their uh, uh, core resources. The, the storage resources that are part of that server on which you're running your instance are local to that instance. They're not persistent. That means they're not formal. And, uh, and data is not replicated by default. So you don't have the ability to snapshot it, um, or, and, but you do have the option to pick between SSD and uh, hard drives, uh, rotating media hard drives. What EBS does is it's a block storage as a service and allows you to attach, detach, and modify logical volumes to your EC2 instance, right? So an EBS volume, uh, if, you hear, if you're a Windows user, you, know, you can think about it as the C drive or the D drive that is you know, associated to your computer. Uh, although it might be a single logical drive that you're seeing in your instance, behind the scenes it's actually backed by multiple physical drives. So that's what EBS does. It's a, it's a network attached block storage service uh, and gives you the ability to create and attach multiple EBS volumes to a single instance. You can, you, can, uh, you, can snapshot, you can snapshot them. You have the ability to pick different EBS types between high performance and high uh, and, uh, and lower cost by picking either SSDs or rotating media drives. Um, and then, like I mentioned earlier, you have the ability to snapshot your EBS volumes. So like if your instance is running with EBS, uh, you can snapshot that current state, and that stored is in S3, which you can use to either launch instances again or distribute to your customers uh, uh, for, for scale-out applications. Great, so let's quickly talk about some new uh, EBS capabilities. Um, so first off, we have encryption enabled by default for EBS volumes. Uh, we have increased uh, the ability to restore from snapshots, uh, FSR, and we have also increased the throughput that is available on, uh, on, uh, for instances for EBS. Uh, so our largest instance sizes uh, went up to 14 gigabits of EBS uh, bandwidth. Uh, we have bumped that up to 19 for our core instances such as C5, M5, and R5, um, and some of our GPU instances also uh, over the last few weeks. Great, so that's a quick run through through EBS. Again, there's a lot of depth in uh, in EBS itself and how to optimize it, what different uh, types of capabilities are there and how you actually snapshot and restore from EBS. Uh, next I wanna talk very quickly about is networking. Networking is super critical uh, and there's again a lot of depth behind networking. Uh, so think about this way. So we talked about security groups uh, when I was going through the demo. Uh, security groups allow you to define the protocols and the IP addresses, uh, the ability for instances to talk out and for people to connect into that instance, right? Uh, so that's just one, cons the construct of a security group. Uh, imagine the case where you have your users that are in your offices, in your branch locations, 
that want to connect to an EC2 instance. So what does that networking connectivity look like from your on-prem to AWS, and how do you manage that and secure that, right? So that's one of the core uh, uh, you know, concepts around EC2 networking. Uh, it gets even more interesting when you talk about multiple users in multiple branch locations talking to a collection of instances that might be running uh, in a single availability zone, or if you're building highly fault-tolerant applications where you have multiple instances, a lot of them are talking to each other, they're talking to the, you know, some of the backend that you have running on-prem, how does that all look like? So EC2 networking gives you the tools and capabilities to manage your network connectivity to AWS and within AWS. The most important concept is uh, the concept of a virtual private cloud, or VPC. Uh, again, it allows you to create logically isolated uh, uh, you know, space or virtual space where you can launch your instances in. So VPC uh, consists of a lot of different settings, uh, security groups being one of them, where you can define things such as, again, what IP addresses and ports are you open to. You can also assign or take away any public IP addresses. So in the case where if you have an application where instances are just talking to each other and you don't want them to have the ability to talk outside of the VPC, you can configure that setting too. So again, uh, there's a lot of depth there, um, right from security groups to talking about ACLs, ACLs, or NAT gateways, or flow logs. Flow logs is interesting, um, where flow logs gives you the ability to track the metadata associated with the traffic. So if you have a, you know incoming flow, uh, from your on-prem into your, in, into your EC2 instance, flow logs give you the ability to look at that detail, look at that metadata, and see wh where the traffic is coming from, what type of traffic is coming. Uh, we release a new capability called traffic mirroring, and what it does is the same network traffic that's coming into an instance, you have the ability to mirror that to another instance for monitoring purposes. So again, really cool capability there. So again, lots of depth. Could probably spend another couple of hours just talking about VPC. So a quick recap. We talked about AMIs, which are virtual machine configurations or images that are running on EC2 instances. Uh, this could be stopped instances or running them. And then EC2 instances are launched as a part of a VPC, um, and they have EBS connected as their boot volume. And when you snapshot EBS, that snapshot is stored in our S3, uh, which is a uh, you know, simple storage service uh, for, for, uh, for backup and uh, DR purposes. Great. So let's jump into availability, um, and let's talk about regions and AZs. We have 22 regions across the world, and that maps to 69 availability zones. And we have already announced our plans to roll out four additional regions uh, in, the next, uh, in the next year, uh, Indonesia, Italy, and South Africa being three of them. Uh, we have our own proprietary network that connects all the regions together. Uh, it's a really high bandwidth, fault tolerant, redundant uh, network that connects uh, um, all of our regions together. And if you, again, going back to the construct of the VPCs, you can actually configure instances to not go over the public internet when they're talking to each other if they're spread across multiple regions. So if you have an instance that's running in Northern Virginia and you wanted to talk to an instance that's running in Oregon, you can do that, and you can make sure that it actually stays within the Amazon network and not, not, not go over um, public internet. Uh, so, so that's, again, the concept of uh, regions availability, a really broad footprint for you to uh, deploy your applications at a, at, a, at a worldwide scale. So let's jump into some tips and tricks um, around how to build fault-tolerant applications and take advantage uh, of this infrastructure that is available to you. Uh, let's talk about ELB, which is Elastic Load Balancing. And the concept is pretty simple. Uh, let's take an example of a web server where you're, you're running your website and you know, it's open to the public and you're receiving incoming requests and you're servicing that request using your web server. Uh, let's imagine that the product that you're selling uh, is a raging success you know, just through the roof and you're getting a lot of requests coming in for people to load up your browser or your, your, your website. So what ELB does is it actually just balances or spreads the workload across a selection of EC2 instances. So all that request is coming in, instead of just all of it going to one instance and just kind of inundating that instance, ELB just spreads that workload so that all those instances are used um, 
in a, um, in a parallel manner. So again, helps you build uh, highly available applic applications that are you know, fault tolerant. ELB with a combination of auto-scaling groups is really powerful. What auto-scaling does, it provides a couple of really key uh, func functions. One is, um, uh, you know, auto-scaling group um, looks at your uh, setup that you have in an ELB and continuously, you can, you can have it set up to actually look at the health of the instance. And in a case where, you know, if there is an instance uh, failure, uh, you know, hardware errors happen, hard drives die, fans die, uh, auto-scaling group would auto-terminate a bad instance and create a new one based on the image that you have assigned it for and add it to the group of instances that are supporting the application. So that's one function. Uh, the other one is dynamic scaling. So again, let's go back to that example of, you know, you're running a web server and you're getting a lot of incoming traffic that you hadn't predicted for, or it's just very seasonal, you want to account for additional volume coming in. Um, dynamic scaling allows you to scale the number of EC2 instances that you have in your scaling group based on certain key parameters that you define. This could be CPU load, like uh, you're looking at CPU load and you say, okay, once the threshold is 75%, I want you to go ahead and spin up one more instance and add it to the pool. And using ELB, since the load is now spread across N plus one instances, the CPU uh, usage is gonna come down and you can start, uh, start maintaining that level again. Or you could look at incoming network traffic. Like if you're serving, let's say, video content, and you know, there's a lot of um, you know, video that is going out of AWS into your clients' you know, phones or browsers, you could be looking at network output and say, okay, you know, once my network throughput reaches this value, I want you to go ahead and spin up one more instance and kind of, kind of share that load across a wider set of instances. So that's what dynamic scaling in EC and auto scaling does along with uh, the concept of uh, ELB. Uh, cool, so let's jump into management. Again, if you have these resources that are running, uh, we have made it um, and continue to make improvements to help you manage and uh, you know, your EC2 instances better. Uh, if you recall in my demo, when I walked through different stages or different screens to actually launch an EC2 instance, you had to uh, pick the army, you had to pick the instance set, you had to configure some additional parameters, tags, you had to configure the security groups. There were a lot of those details. Uh, uh, customers were telling us that they need a simple way for them to define a predefined template that they can use to consistently launch these EC2 instances with. Uh, so we, uh, about a year ago, we launched uh, what we call as launch templates, uh, where uh, all these instance parameters, like instance types, EPS volume, AMI IDs, network interfaces, tags, all of that is, is collapsed into this concept of a template uh, that can be launched using console, CLI, or an API, and it makes it really easy and, uh, for customers to provide a consistent experience, manage permissions, apply governance models, and you know, improve the productivity of your developers because you know, they're not going through this, uh, these details all the time. It's pretty simple. Uh, and we've also made it easy where cloud admins or IT admins can define templates and using uh, identity and access management controls, uh, limit those templates or allow, those allow their internal customers to only launch EC2 instances with those templates and nothing else, right? So it allows you to kind of really uh, apply a strong governance model uh, to your EC2 uh, instances. The other thing that we have been innovating over the last three or four years on is uh, AWS System Manager. Uh, this allows you to uh, look at the health of your instances, it allows you to look at the software that's running on EC2 instances and make sure that it's in that state that you would want it to be. Uh, AWS System Manager also supports uh, on-prem deployments where it will give you an agent, you can deploy it on your on-prem VMs and have it tunnel data back into a dashboard where you can look at the health and the software status of not just your EC2 instances but also your on-prem resources. Again, you know, allows you to make it uh, really simple to track software inventory uh, across accounts, across different instance types, and across cloud and on-premise. It's supported for Linux and Windows. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about in this space is License Manager. Uh, a lot of customers use third-party software, such as software from SAP, Microsoft, or Oracle, uh, and they need a way to track the usage 
of these licenses and make sure it's compliant with uh, the, uh, what their contract requires. So AWS License Manager uh, lets you define these rules, enforce them, uh, measure the usage, and overall like just manage access and utilization of these licenses on your EC2 instances. Uh, it's seamlessly integrated with AWS System Manager, so the, the, the capability that we talked about in the previous slide, and it's available for um, free to use. It uh, doesn't uh, come with an additional charge. Great. In the last five minutes, let's talk about purchase options. Uh, so there are generally four different ways that you have to uh, consume and pay for EC2 resources. Uh, the most common one is on demand, where you just spin up uh, resources and on a pay-as-you-go model, where, uh, for, uh, where, where the usage is actually measured on a per-second basis. Uh, it used to be an hour, but about a year ago, we actually, uh, you know, uh, we heard your feedback that there, there were workloads, that there were cases where uh, VMs were not terminating at the hourly boundary, and we changed our, uh, or updated our um, uh, uh, monitoring metrics to actually measure usage by the second. Really good for spike, spiky workloads. Um, in the case where you actually have sustained usage, where the instance is continuously running, uh, we'll, uh, we provide the ability to reserve instances and get a significant discount uh, from on-demand prices. Uh, in many cases, up to 70% discount for a three-year commitment uh, over, over on-demand prices. About a month ago, we launched a new concept called Savings Plan. How many of you guys are familiar with Savings Plan? A few hands, great. Yeah, Savings Plan, I'm super excited about Savings Plan. Uh, what it does is it gives you the ability to commit not at an instance level, like you don't have to commit and say, okay, I'm gonna use an M5 Excel or an M5 for the next year or next three years, right? It allows you to commit to a dollar amount in EC2. Let's say you say, I'm gonna spend $1,000 on a yearly basis for one year with EC2. Once you set that threshold, Savings Plan will take your instance usage and automatically apply up to a 70% discount up to that threshold that you have set. So in this case, up to that $1,000 mark that you have set for the year. So if all your usage for EC2 and, and, the, and, and the charges you're incurring up to that $1,000 mark would automatically get a pretty significant discount. And, uh, and if you go above that, if your usage goes above the, the, the 1,000 threshold or the, uh, the monetary threshold you have set, you'll be charged on an on-demand basis. So it really simplifies how, uh, how to actually optimize your spend on EC2. Uh, the last one is spot instances. Um, so with spot instances, we allow customers to tap into our unused capacity. So, uh, the, and, and if you do that, we get you a, we get, we get you a discount of up to 90%. Uh, the key caveat to keep in mind is spot instances uh, are, um, are uh, terminate, ter terminatable, like in the sense, uh, if you launch an instance and we need the capacity to support an on-demand customer or a zero of instances customer, uh, we'll take that uh, your capacity back, but give you a two-minute warning uh, before we actually do that. So it's really good for uh, fault-tolerant, um, you know, stateless workloads, um, and a lot of our customers are successfully using Spot um, and, and seeing significant discounts uh, over, uh, over on-demand. Uh, in either, uh, even uh, reserve instances. So again, uh, reserve instances, uh, like I said, you can commit from a one-year to a three-year term. Uh, you can get a pretty significant discount. You do have the option to uh, pick how you're gonna pay for these reserve instances. You could pay for it all up front. Uh, you could do a partial payment where you can, you can pay 50% of it up front, the remaining 50% on a monthly basis. Or you could do a no upfront, where you're just charged on a monthly basis for your reserve instances. Um, they also give you the ability to uh, allocate capacity. So if you're buying a reserve instance, you can say, okay, I'm gonna pick an M5 Excel, and I'll actually, AWS, I want you to reserve that capacity for me so that I'm guaranteed to have that capacity. Uh, so uh, through the concept of a zonal RI, we give you the ability to, um, to lock in that capacity for that instance itself. Uh, some of our customers, I'm going to skip through some of this content in the interest of time. Uh, some of our customers ask us for recommendations on uh, when do I use which purchase type? 
the answer to that question is, well, you should use them all. Uh, if you have steady state workloads that are going to continuously run in AWS and EC2, we recommend for you to you know, use RIs or savings plan to really optimize your spend on EC2. Uh, for workloads that are bursty, uh, we recommend using on-demand. Uh, on-demand gives you the flexibility to only pay for what you need and, 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 and not be committed to a, like a one-year or three-year term. So that's, again, a really good usage model for spike, spiky workloads. Uh, and the last one is, uh, last one is Spot. Uh, for fault-tolerant applications uh, that, are, uh, that, that can manage their states uh, across instance terminations, uh, we recommend Spot. Again, through the combination of uh, all these uh, four purchasing options, uh, you, know, you can really optimize your spend and cut it down by 60, 70, 80% uh, uh, over just standard running on, on demand. Great. So with that, um, you know, like I said, you know, we quickly walked through EC2 instances, some of the other uh, capabilities around networking, storage, availability, management, and purchasing options. And that's it. All right, thank you so much. Uh, hopefully you guys had a really good reInvent. And I'm, I'm going to stick around for any questions that you might have. Appreciate your time. Thank you.